on A&E with groundbreaking original shows like The First 48, Cold Case Files, Accused, Guilty or Innocent, and American Justice. No one brings you closer. Groundbreaking true crime every Thursday and Friday on A&E. Every advertiser knows the perfect campaign needs the perfect music to make it really pop. With Premium Beat, you get tracks produced by award-winning musicians working in world-class studios. So all of your videos will sound and feel professional. Best of all, unlike other music providers, our license gives you tracks for a lifetime. Pay once and never again. Save 25% on your next track. Just visit premiumbeat.com slash royalty dash free slash podcast to redeem your coupon. That's premiumbeat.com slash royalty dash free slash podcast. un pouvoir politique sur un groupe social, la justice également. Bon, et il me semble que la tâche politique actuelle dans une société comme la nôtre, c'est de critiquer le jeu des institutions apparemment les plus neutres et les plus indépendantes, de les critiquer, de l'attaquer de telle manière que la violence politique qui s'exerçait obscurément en eux, surgissent et pour qu'on puisse lutter contre elles. My uh, favorite Quebec artist is uh, Jean-Paul Lemieux. Not all of the times, but some of the times he paints these stark landscapes where a simple figure stands very prominently in the foreground as if posing for photograph. This can be seen in the podcast episode about uh, Back River Jane Doe, Armand Jamel, which features the uh, Lemieux 1961 painting, The Terminus, White snow, black sky, and a woman in a red winter coat and hat. And there's something haunting in his work. The woman is almost absent in her presence. I ha have a Lemieux print framed in my home. It's very similar. There's a young boy in the snow, standing to the right of the frame in the foreground, near the shores of a levee, um, the St. Lawrence River in Quebec City, Citadel, is very prominent in the background. I often think I'll wake up one morning and 
that boy will be gone. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Ken Burns likes to attribute that quote to Mark Twain, although there's no definitive proof that Twain actually said it. This is who killed Teresa. wasn't enough of a tip-off, I'm going to retell and expand on the Halloween episode I did last fall about the Villeneuve family. Remember that the Villeneuves were a family that lived up the street uh, from us uh, when we were growing up in Pierrefonds, which is a town on the west island of Montreal. The Villeneuves used to do this big spectacle at Halloween the mother, Lisa, and her two daughters, Debbie and Vivian, would uh, dress up like the witches in Macbeth. They'd have this cauldron on their front lawn with dry ice and uh, strobe light. Um, so t- to pick it up, um, I'm going to read from the Christopher Bain Montreal Gazette article from October 31st, 1977, Kids Bewitched Into Safe Halloween. I read it on that fall episode, but this time I'm, I'm going to read the whole article because I think it's uh, really interesting and um, uh, telling for where we're going with this story today. Lisa Villeneuve is a witch... She has recipes for lovers and paupers and puts on a special show which is full of tricks and treats every Halloween. Kids, who know a good thing when they see it, have been forming a mini woodstock on Villeneuve's front lawn in Pierrefonds for the last ten years. Last year a woman drove all the way from Toronto just for us, says Villeneuve, hauntingly. So what's this? Villeneuve and her two daughters, Debbie, 17, and Vivian, 15, are all serious adherents of the occult arts. Ten years ago, when real weirdos began putting pins and razor blades in trick-or-treat apples, Villeneuve decided her street needed more lights. Anything to put in the light to discourage the would-be child killer. With her background in the occult, I can't remember how long ago it was that I became interested, she says. She translated her wishes into a well-lit cauldron on the front lawn 
weird sounds and special lights. The lights and the sounds are just a way of protecting the kitties, she says. She also mildly laments what her good intentions have led to. Now it's expected every year, and my daughters have to help me out. We give out about 1,200 treats every Halloween. Already cars, driven by parents, <laughs> driven by the kids, <laughs> have started parking outside our house because the kids want to see what we're preparing. Villeneuve, who is a housewife most of the time, does not take her witchcraft lightly. It isn't just for the kiddies. With assistance from Debbie, she lectures on the occult throughout Pierrefonds. What does the occult mean to the Villeneuves? Basically, it's a belief that you can do certain things you think you can do. We do a few spells at home, she says, and pauses for effect. This is where the good part, the sex and money part, comes in. The sexual seduction spell, says Debbie, a grade 11 student who teach, whose teachers call her mother to ask what witchcraft is all about, starts on the night of a new moon and lasts nine days. If after doing it there are no results, there never will be. On the night of the new moon, take a red candle, unscented, if you like, and a piece of good writing paper that pleases you. Then, and this is the clincher, write your name first, middle and last, and your lover's name below. If you write it above, you'll be dominated. Then write your lover's birth date and yours below. Next, draw a heart around the information and go over it two more times with whatever you wrote it with in the first place. Fold the paper as small as possible, put it in the candle flame, and let it burn. Chant, light the flame, bright the fire, red is the color of desire. Light the flame, light the fire, red is the color of desire. Because I said last time it sounds exactly like a sticks song. <laughs> This has to be done three times while the paper is burning. Finally, you put the ash in a small box and repeat for nine consecutive nights. You can also, if you like, make a small red silk sack of the ashes to wear on your person as an amulet. Concentration is the most important thing. You should, while you're doing the spell, try and visualize the other person, she says. I think this is, this is Debbie who's saying this. In fact, it is. In fact, adds her mother, you should be able to smell, see, and feel, feel the other person if you concentrate enough. For money, continues Debbie, you think of money. If you want enough to cover a small debt, take a handful of new pennies Stand outside your house or room on a night with a full moon and throw them in behind your back. Leave them there for two weeks, from one new moon to the next, and don't touch them. After that, 
The money will come either by check or inheritance. It's not a lifetime deal, just for small debts, she says. Okay, so, so that's the article from October 1977. And I want to stress here, I am in no way making fun of, of witchcraft, paganism, Wiccan. Um, I was being playful at the time and now because the article was somewhat playful. And as I've said, um, what happened next after that podcast was strange. And and it it wasn't just strange. It was a it was like a oh come on fuck off moment uh, because that that podcast was supposed to be sort of whimsical, like a breather, a break um, from the gloom that that I usually talk about here. Um, in some ways, it was a one off, right? We, we we talked about the this Villeneuve family and reminisced, uh, you know that. Uh, they lived in our neighborhood and, and everybody thought they were, you know, a bit odd. We all knew, uh, you know, that they, uh, they thought they were witch, witches. Um, uh, I talked about having been in their house once and, uh, like being kind of, it was just weird. Um, but it, it was weird from the perspective of like a 12 or 13 year old boy. In retrospect, there was nothing really weird about it. Um, but, um, you know, as I said, it, 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 it felt like that episode, some one-off fun, um, before, you know, I decided to lean back into some real horror and, um, about a week after posting that episode, I, I, I received a message and, um, before we plunge into this, I want to say a word of caution about the messages and the information I'm, I'm about to uh, relay, um, read, <laughs> lost for words. I'm going to tell you um, in this podcast. Um, in, in the absence of concrete facts, People tend to feed off suspicion and rumor and fear. And um, also, you know, there's many suggestions in these correspondences about, you know, about the family lifestyle of the Villeneuve's, not only the witchcraft, but other things. And I'm going to leave them as suggestions and just allow you to fill in the blanks and draw your own conclusions. Uh, I may say a few words at the end about um, why I think in the absence of fact that happens and and how damaging that is. I, don't, I haven't really made my mind up. So, um, so this is the first message I received from a high school friend of Vivian Villeneuve, Vivian, if you go to the website, www.theresalore.com, uh, is that um, I'll post the, the narrative, the, the rough skeletal narrative of this story 
you'll see that I spell Vivian many ways. V-I-V-I-E-N-N-E, V-I-V-I-A-N, V-I-V-I-E-N. That's not me making mistake. That's quite, uh, that's an act of desperation trying to reach out to anyone who has information on this case uh, um, with, you know, the, the uh, sort of the, the hunch that it, 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 well, the documented fact that it's spelt different ways in, in different places. Um, because there's very little information on this case. Uh, there's just rumor. So this is the first uh, message I received from a high school friend of Vivian, and we'll call her Claire. I lived not far from you growing up in Montreal. I'm surprised we didn't know each other. Vivian Villeneuve was a friend of mine, and for years I've been trying to find out about her murder with no answers. Do you know anything about her case? Vivian lived and walked this earth, and now it's like the whole family disappeared. I understand that Debbie committed suicide a few years after Vivian's murder. So let's stop there for a minute. And I think I, as I posted online, had I known um, at the time of making the original podcast um, that this this sort of whimsical podcast was really ultimately about a, a murder and a suicide, I never would have treated it the way I treated it. It would have been done very, very differently. I had no idea that Vivian allegedly uh, was murdered and that, that her sister Debbie allegedly, according to Claire, um, committed suicide. So uh, this immediately um, piqued my fucking interest. Um, uh, but just uh, don't hold any of that information as, as fact yet because uh, uh, this is a plot twister and I'll let Claire continue with her message. Viv and I graduated in 79 and I lost track of her as so many of us left Montreal at that time. With the introduction of home computers, I started to look for my friends like Vivian. At my 25th high school reunion, I learned that Vivian had passed but did not know how. I was searching for her obituary again, and then I learned that Viv had been violently murdered shortly after high school. I have searched everywhere for a sign. With Vivian's family being pagan, I did not expect to find any church records. I just want to know what happened to my friend. I understand that you were not aware of the situation. I checked with some high school friends. We figured that it probably happened between 1979 and 85. What I was told so far is that it was a suspected drug deal gone bad. She was tied and thrown off the roof of a building. I assumed it was Montreal as my friend knew someone who went to the funeral. Let me check with my friend again. 
I talked to a number of people last night. The general consensus is that Vivian was killed at a house party in Montreal, possibly in 1980. It could have been a drug deal gone bad. There are rumors that it was a very violent death and she may have been thrown from the roof of a building. I find it strange that I can find nothing on a crime of this magnitude. I worked in the justice system for 25 years and something just isn't adding up to me. How can a family just vanish from history? I will keep looking for Vivian. I do want to thank you for sharing your experiences with her family. It reminded many people of the wonderful times we had with Vivian. Before we uh, move on, uh, just a, f a few comments. Um, so uh, we have our old friend, the high school reunion. Uh, a high school reunion is a great place to get this sort of um, 30,000 foot view uh, uh, catching up on, on what people have got up to. It's a terrible place to get specifics. Um, hence, we have our other old friend, the drug theory gone bad, introduced into this story. I'm not saying that that didn't happen, but I'm saying that once, once that story, that narrative latches on, it's very hard to shake it. Um, and before moving on to the second message I received, uh, during all of this, there's, there was, a, there was a lot of digging for information going on between me and Claire, um, a lot of back and forth messaging. Um, and this went on through Christmas and the new year, uh, checking newspaper archives, uh, medical legal records, checking with the police, um, uh, and to give you some, you know, just a little more detail on that. <clears throat> so we checked both the English and French uh, press. Uh, in Quebec, we are very fortunate to have rich uh, media archives, um, both uh, of publications in Montreal, like the Montreal Gazette, uh, La Presse, you know, um, uh, even less known uh, publications. And, and then... If, if you need the tabloids like uh, Montreal Matin, um, Allo Police, Photo Police, you can go, you can go to the specific uh, library and find them. Uh, if you're privileged, you can even phone them up and say, hey, can you just pull out the microfiche and look for something for me? So all of that was done um, with this. And we got very little, very little. Uh, I mean, number one, there was no... Um, there was no the morning after news article in French or English about Vivian Villeneuve, um, which can mean two things. One, it was never covered. That's suspicious. Num number two, maybe it didn't happen. And this is just all a rumor and speculation uh, boiling up from a high school reunion and high school friends talking in the void of knowledge and information and filling in uh, what their own fears and imaginations provide. Um, so the next thing you can do, of course, is, um, uh, well, I checked with the police, um, the cold case uh, uh, bureau, um, and the head of the, <laughs> I have it right here in my book. Uh, so there we go. 
um, Francois Petit is the head of the uh, uh, Montreal Cold Case Bureau. So I contacted him and said, you got a file on this? And he doesn't have a file. He's got no file on Vivian, a murder of Vivian Villeneuve. Again, that can mean it never happened. It also can mean that they lost the file, um, which um, uh, Montreal, uh, even more so than the Sarté de Québec, is even more... Um, um, <clears throat> lacks on their record retention policies. It would not be the first time that a record went missing with the Montreal police. Um, so that could be the, a possibility. The, the other thing that we looked at was, <clears throat> you know, the idea of, did we have the wrong jurisdiction? Uh, you know, typically so someone might say, well, she was thrown off a building in Montreal. Um, but what they really mean is like the, the, greater Montreal area, um, you know, much like in, in Toronto, which more people know, you know, there's the Toronto police, um, but then there's the GTA, the greater Toronto area, which also covers like Scarborough, Mississauga, Peel police, I believe, cover to the north, not the urban center of Toronto. So you'd get different jurisdictions. So it was, if somebody, in, if somebody, you know, at a high school friend says, she was, you know, She's thrown off a building in Montreal. They might very well mean, well, what I really meant was Laval, which is off the island of Montreal. What I really meant was Longueuil, which is the southeast of Montreal. Um, and that can lead to confusion because then you need to go to a different jurisdiction and ask for that information. Um, but <clears throat> sort of the gold standard of finding this kind of information is checking with... Uh, of the provincial government for medical legal uh, information, coroner's report, autopsy reports. Um, they are some of the best at cataloging that stuff uh, and keeping it. And um, we did a search and found absolutely nothing on a Vivian Villeneuve. No medical legal records, which is rare. Um, Sometimes they might not have nothing, you know, in the case of, uh, I recall Louise Cameron, there was one page, Manon de Bay was three pages, nothing on a Vivian Villeneuve. Um, and even then, it get, you know, somebody said she died in 1980. I think it was closer to the mid 80s, um, uh, which this, this is a minutia, but when you get close to 86 or 87, the laws changed. So pre-86, 87, the records are with the, the provincial library post. I believe they're with the actual coroner's uh, office in each jurisdiction. So you got to ask the right places. We did all of this. We did all of this and we came up, um, we came up empty. Uh, different checking, different spellings of uh, Vivian, all of that. So at, at some point during all of this effort, I got a second message from a relative of the Villeneuve's, and we will call her Carmen. Vivian's sister, Debbie, did not commit suicide. It was their mother, Lisa, 
who committed suicide. Lisa died first, then Vivian. This is what I heard by trying to figure out why. I can't find anything. And at the time, I was very young. And now everyone has passed, even my mother, Lisa's sister. I know Debbie was married and used to do dog shows with her German short-haired dogs and then got divorced. Debbie got into drugs, had a car accident, broke her neck, and recovered. She no longer spoke to my uncle. Not sure why. Mark that. That becomes important. The family was into witchcraft. My baby sister swears she saw either Debbie or Vivian using their eyes to throw plates at their mother. My sister was only three at the time and swears it's true. I spoke to Debbie's first husband, Gerald. Vivian died in the summer of 85 or 86. He remembers it was hot. She lived in downtown Montreal in an apartment building, and he can't remember the street, but she lived on the 11th floor. Her hands were tied together, and her legs were tied together, and she was thrown out of the 11th floor. They would not release anything to the public, And that's why there's no news articles, until the investigation was finished. The investigation took six months, and then they deemed it a suicide and closed the file. Gerald never once believed it was suicide, and that something was being covered up. So this answers the question of why I can't find articles of news about her. Now, to his knowledge, Gerald's, Lee's was always Lisa, which is not true. So I wonder if she was buried under Lisa, assuming she changed her name legally. Lisa Cartier, as she was not married to my uncle, so she was not a Villeneuve. And in Quebec, you don't always change your name as a woman sometimes. Gerald said that he always believed it was a cover-up. Yes, me too. I need to think. Vivian was not involved in drugs. 
and those sorts of things. But she was quite successful in modeling and was still modeling at the time. I remember her being very tall, like her mom, and the last time I spoke to Debbie, she indicated that Vivian was dying a slow death already with bulimia. She had been this way for years, so she must have been quite skinny. So she was a model, and my father said she hung out with high society people, which is starting to make sense why there is nothing available and sounding a bit like a payoff from a very wealthy person. But I'm no detective. My father said she hung out with the high and mighty, so that is always a possibility. I'm reading that there was a lot of Hell's Angels action in Montreal in that period. I'm going to change my focus of my research to figure out what Montreal modeling agencies she was associated with. Having uncovered all of this short of talking to retired police officers or old models, I'm sure there will be no further information, as it's all been wiped clean. So now we have the Hells Angels introduced into it, right? And um, which is which is natural in the absence of, of knowledge. Um, uh, your mind begins to race, and um, uh, you know, as she says, she's no detective, and and neither am I, quite frankly. Um, and and um, let's be honest, if if in fact she was bound by the hands and feet and thrown off an eleventh story building. Um, this does not sound like a sexual murder to me um, at all. It, it sounds you know, organized. Uh, it does sound like a vendetta kind of thing, quite frankly. Um, so this, I wrote, about this time is when I found uh, Lisa Villeneuve's autopsy report. Um, and it was very difficult to find. I had to go back to the well several times times and change the name because as you can hear she's Lisa she's Lise she's not a Villeneuve she's a Cartier it was all very very confusing so I'll, I'll just here read some pertinent facts from uh, the um, corner information and it's in French but I, I'm just gonna wing it here and let it fly let's see how this goes so um, uh, Lisa Cartier 11926 uh, Boulevard Pavilion in Pierrefonds. And um, the date on this is... Uh, the date of the report is December 5th, 1984, but that's not the date of uh, death. So the deposition is from her, uh, her partner, I guess, Marcel Villeneuve. Uh, and it says, um, the deceased is my um, spouse. Um, she was depressive for 15 years. Um, she was on medication, uh, treated, uh, at the Lakeshore hospital, uh, for about 20 years. Um, recently she, she seemed good. Um, uh, uh, during the yesterday, um, she was in her bed. Um, she seemed to be sleeping and yesterday night, uh, I found her in the bed, um, no, she was found in the bed by my my daughter. So that's either um, Debbie or or Vivian. She had a history of uh, cardiac uh, problems, um, uh, problems with her arteries, um, these kind of things. She was obese, three hundred pounds, difficulty uh, breathing, and 
the police um, of the Montreal police uh, say uh, the body's taken to the Montreal morgue. Uh, the pathologist is André Lazan. Uh, we, if, you, if, if you're dedicated, you know that name. André Lazan was the pathologist on my sister's case, Teresa Allure, uh, as well as many others. Um, and it says, um, the report is November 29th, 1984, the opinion cause of death. Um, uh, there's a lot of evidence. Um, there's no evidence of violence, uh, traumatic violence on the corpse, on the body. Uh, there's a lot of, um, there were many bottles of, uh, of pills, of medications, uh, so it's reasonable to believe that the deceased, uh, her death is attributed to intoxication by uh, the ingestion of a abusive uh, medicament of pills. She died of, uh, it's, it's deemed a, a violent death um, from an overdose of uh, drugs. Carmen continues... It's what I had been told it was a suicide overdose. Even my cousin thought it was odd that she went by Lisa and must have changed her name legally, as she was definitely Lisa Lise Cartier at marriage. My cousin also tells me that Vivian was not a professional model, but modeled things for her mom. When I asked, uh, what I was told was that Lisa, Lisa dabbled in a few things, nothing more than that. My cousin indicated uh, Vivi died at age 24. I had a long conversation with my cousin who set me straight on a few things. So there's a pause here in the correspondence. First of all, Viv was not a model. My aunt sold furry bikinis and Viv would model those. Please don't ask as it sounds like my aunt was a little funny. The morning that Vivian died, she called her dad and asked him for electrical wire. When he asked why, she said she was doing a project, so he brought it to her. That day, her hands were tied and her legs were tied when she went over the 11-story balcony. She was not in any trouble or into any drugs, as far as anyone knows. My uncle blamed himself for years for the suicide and for bringing her the electrical wire. So that's the point I wanted to get back to where it says Debbie never spoke to her father again, uh, presumably because she blamed him for her sister's death, for Vivian's death, which is horrible. Uh... I, I can only speak from personal experience that I can tell you that everyone, when they're touched by such an event, everyone blames themselves. Everybody makes themselves the center of the story and takes responsibility for what happened. It's not logical, but it's just a natural process. And it's horrible. Horrible. It was bad enough that allegedly Vivian Villeneuve died, but but then it tears apart the family. <clears throat> Carmen continues. As I said to my cousin, you can't tie your hands and legs and drop off the balcony on your own. 
So it's always been assumed that she had an accomplice help her in her suicide. Now, this just begins to defy reason, right? And Carmen, her sister Debbie and her ex-husband never believed it was suicide. And really, there are easier ways to take your life, such as pills, etc. I'm not sure what to believe, but I will continue in my search because either way, someone needed to help her. Nobody knew what Lisa did for a living. She dressed to the tees and hung around with rich people at very fancy yacht clubs, as well as with the Hell's Angels. I just found out that her sister and brother-in-law often thought she was a call girl, because she just had too much money. Hung with the rich, but nobody knew what work she did. She often brought my cousin and her girls to the fancy yacht club to eat. Lisa was into some very weird stuff, and it was, I don't know, very well might have been that Viv followed in her footsteps, as they were very close. Viv used to model her mother's line of fur bikini underwear, and that in itself is very, very weird. Having said that, my cousin says that it's quite possible that Viv could have been an escort, as she lived in a very, very nice building in downtown Toronto. I'm going to try to get more details on that apartment building. For reference, there was a long um, period where we tried to investigate Vivian's alleged... There's a lot that's alleged here. <laughs> Life for a few years in Toronto, but we never got anywhere with it. Continuing. Deborah's husband, Jerry, Gerald, has not spoken to his ex-wife in 40 years and has no clue where she is. I figured it was not an amicable divorce. He has not talked to my uncle, Marcel, in 30 years either. I never got to ask Jerry if he knew where Viv was buried. If you'd like, I can give you his number to contact him. What do you think? He used to own a business that provided props for events, movie sets, etc. in Montreal. Le Roi Rouge or something like this. Le Roi du Tapis Rouge. To find that info, I might find uh, Lison, his partner, but for the love of God, I can't find anything on that either. I even tried searching old articles as my uncle was investigated for a fire, potential fraud, for an event fire in either Kingston or Kitchener. Don't remember which one or the year and unable to find anything. Well, I did. Uh... Uh, it was a van full of equipment for a film called The Boy in Blue, 1984, 
movie starring Nicolas Cage, Canadian film Nicolas Cage and Christopher Plummer. Ned Hanlon is determined to become the fastest man on water. You don't know how good you are, do you? Sure I do. But first he's got to reform himself. St. Catharines, Ontario. September 29th, 1984, a van full of equipment for the movie Boy in Blue was destroyed in a fire causing $300,000 in damage. The van was owned by Marcel Villeneuve of Pierrefonds. So there, you know, now even I'm starting to do it, right? I'm chasing down every two-bit lead trying to find information. Um, the date is interesting. The, the, the fire, which allegedly was... Possibly arson was months before the suicide of his partner, uh, spouse, Lisa Cartier-Villeneuve. I know I can. Nicholas Cage is the boy in blue, the true story of a legend who left history in his wake. One final comment from Carmen. She says, And for the life of me, I tried the cemetery again. They checked under Lisa, Lise Cartier, Villeneuve. They checked under Deborah Villeneuve. They checked under Marcel Villeneuve. And neither my aunt or Lise is there. She took my number and will keep looking, but she spent 10 minutes going through all of the details and nothing. So this was, um, I found the death notice for, 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 for Lisa Villeneuve. I, I found the English version and then Carmen found the French version. Um, and it's stated uh, that she died November 27th, 1984, age 49. Uh, Lisa Cartier, beloved wife of Marcel Villeneuve, cherished mother of Deborah, uh, wife of Gerald Prezot. So she married again. And Vivian. Um, it's weird that Vivian does not come in conjunction with Deborah unless I'm, I'm missing something. Uh, it would also suggest that in 1984, uh, um, Vivian Villeneuve was still alive, which kind of lends to the information that she died 85, 86. Um, it says funeral service at St. David Church, thence to Rideau Memorial Gardens Cemetery, and now you're getting a new feature on the podcast uh, called My Grandfather's Clock. Hope you enjoy it. Um, thence to Rideau, uh, Rideau Memorial Garden Cemetery. Uh, so Rideau Cemetery is uh, on St. Charles Boulevard in Point Claire-ish, Dollar, Dollar des Ormes in the West Island. Um, and yeah. Uh, I phoned the cemetery. Uh, uh, Carmen phoned the cemetery, uh, it, trying to find what we were really after was if if Lisa Villeneuve Cartier was there was perhaps um, uh, if Deborah, or excuse me, if Vivian died later, was she interned in the family plot alongside Lisa? Well, they could not find any record of uh, uh, Lisa Villeneuve, the mother, being interned there. None, none. And we both checked, and we continue to check. Um, 
Now, my brother had mentioned to me, you know, you know, it's not uncommon. A newspaper may get something, uh, might get something wrong. Uh, uh, but that would have to be, uh, the same error is made in the French notice. The French notice says uh, that she's interned at uh, Rideau uh, Memorial Garden. In It says it in English. Um, it would be odd for them both to get it wrong. Uh, it would be presumed that it was a like a, a release from the family. It would be very odd for the family and a release to both the French and English media to get the um, location of the internment wrong. As you, you can imagine, this was getting um, slightly absurd and slightly obsessive, pathetic. Um, so for a while I let things slow down. I got busy. Then uh, recently I was talking to my brother and, um, you know, I should have gone to my brother in the first place because uh, he remembers everything. But I don't, I don't like to involve him in these things too much. Um, you know, it depends on his mood. Um, he, um, you know, he, he might respond, I don't know, I don't remember, or I don't care. Can we talk about something else? Except, you know, he'll never say that. You, you just know that's the case, and you, you quickly drop it. Now, this time... Maybe because we all have a lot of time on our hands. This time, he said, um, well, it it started in the usual way. Um, I tell him the story of the, the Villeneuve's, so far so good. Um, you know, he remembers this, he remembers that. He remembers the Halloween thing. Okay, he's got that. Uh, the witches uh, stuff. Yeah, yeah, he's following me there. And then, and then we switch gears and, and I drop in his lap the, the murder and the, the suicide. And immediately, as, not, not surprisingly, I, you know, who wants to deal with that? Right? It's like, um, I don't remember. I don't know. I didn't really know them. You should talk to Damien Mitchell. He lived next door to them. And, you know, I say, I don't know who that is. And he says, you sure, the Mitchells? Sure you do. Big family. Boys. You used to play with his younger brother, Emmett. And I say, I don't remember. Sure you do. Big family. You know who you should talk to, he says. Glenn Poole. 
he was a neighbor with Joanne Bedard, and Joanne was friends with Vivian. Vivian was around my age. And in fact, you know, my brother says, just when you said that, you, you know, I, I think I remember Damian Mitchell. I remember seeing him at a, a reunion or a show. This was like 10 years ago. And just with you saying that, I think I remember him telling me about this. That Vivian was killed and it was all very tragic. Talk to Joanne Bedard. She was very close to Vivian and knew her. Uh, that's how I ended up in the Villeneuve house, he says. And I remember being scared shitless. I never phoned Debbie's ex-husband, Jerry. I thought about it, but I, I never picked up the phone. I never contacted Damian Mitchell or spoke to Joanne Bedard. Well, actually, I did. I communicated with Joanne Bedard. In fact, um, in the course of recording this, I've been communicating with Joanne Bedard. <laughs> but um, it's it's much the same, this story. Um She's as much in the dark as all of us, and although she was a best friend, uh, it's still a painful memory for her. Um, why put everyone through that again? Why put a family through all that? Again, on a story that may not be true. Um, these are deep fears, um, what if I'm forgotten? Do I really exist? But maybe these people just want to be left alone. Maybe they want to just be forgotten. Either Carmen or Claire, I forget which one, did manage to find um, a small photo of Debbie Villeneuve from the 1982 Gazette of Montreal. She was a super bingo lotto winner. Um, and her picture is displayed with other winners. So, what if it's true? Vivian Villeneuve was bound and tossed from the 11th story of a Montreal apartment building. Uh, 11th story is interesting. It's specific. doesn't sound made up. It's interesting. That would mean three young women from that Pierrefonds neighborhood wound up murdered. All of them lived within a mile radius. My sister, Teresa Lohr, the 1976 murder of Barbara uh, Mayers, who lived just across the railway tracks. There's a podcast on that. You can find it on the website. Uh, and Vivian Villeneuve, who lived up the street from our house on Blondin, 
take Blondin up to Woodland, and you're at the house of Joanne uh, Bedard. Blondin the other way ends at Pavilion, our house on the corner. Follow Pavilion two blocks, and you're at the old Villeneuve house. I still don't remember Damian Mitchell. I, I do remember Greg Aldridge. He was my hockey coach, and he also lived close to the Villeneuve's, uh, one or two doors down. Greg was an early mentor. He gave me a copy of Boy on Defense, a hockey book by Neil Young's father, Scott Young. Greg died young of cancer. And um, just yesterday, in fact, um, because I'm looking for things to read, I found that um, edition of Boy on Defense. It says, uh, to John Allure, Hoping that you enjoy it. Greg Aldridge, coach, May 19th, 1975. Greg died, um, oh, let me see, 1989. After his death, his wife, Maze, used to sit up all night alone in the house with the lights off, suffering in silence in the dark. Do you know the concept? It's uh, cryptonesia. Um, it's where you unintentionally copy or plagiarize something. Um, Byron did it. So did J.M. Barry, Peter Pan, Umberto uh, Echo did it. Uh, my, my favorite cryptonesia story is about Aerosmith. Uh, this is in their heavy, heavy drug use days. Um, I think they were recording Done With Mirrors. And, and their song, You See Me Crying, comes on the radio. Uh, that song is, is an early ballad. Uh, it rarely got airplay, and, um, and the band never performed it in concert. So, so Steven Tyler hears it on the radio, and he says, Hey, that's a really great song. We should cover it. To which Joe Perry replies, that's us, fuckhead. <laughs> that's, uh, that's Kryptonesia in, <laughs> in a nutshell right there. I'm a little obsessed with cryptonesia. There's, um, uh, there's a personal story of it um, that uh, uh, came out of in, in, in the writing of the, the book that we're just finishing on Teresa Allure's case. And um, uh, to, I'll just tell you that editing is a tedious process and going through the editing and re-editing and uh, answering to the your editors and then answering to the copy editor who's much more strict about things um, and then the legal people um, and referencing everything in notes um, so in in the the melee of this confusion um, a, a phrase stuck in my head um, the phrase is it's quite a puzzle and I remembered I was like oh that and because puzzles um, factor large in the manuscript and uh, as they do in my life um, currently with the time on my hand I'm I got several 
thousand piece jigsaw puzzles on the go here and uh it's quite a puzzle i remembered um um in 1978 somebody in law enforcement uttering that and it struck me i was like oh god that's really great we got to somehow squeeze that in the manuscript sort of like a last minute edit so i go back and i start um researching and trying to find it and you know first i go online check all the newspaper archives and it's not popping at all and I'm, I'm like oh fuck um it's probably from a student newspaper uh, like either the the campus which was the bishop's university paper or the touchstone which was the champlain college paper and i'm like oh for christ's sake that's impossible there's nothing online there's nothing digital on that stuff i've got some old you know greasy paper copies i gotta tediously go through all of that um uh, you know, so I started looking and, you know, I'm about four hours in on this uh, mission and I finally go, what the hell? Um, so I opened, you know, the last version of the manuscript and in, in find, I plug in, it's quite a puzzle. <laughs> sure enough, it's right there, you know, it's right in the fucking manuscript. I've just forgotten that, you know, I've already written it in. Uh <laughs> It's quite a puzzle, Leo Hamel said. Uh, that's Kryptonesia as, as, as well. Um, I'm also fond of Kryptonesia's distant cousin, false memory um, and uh, the Mandela effect. Uh, do you know, do you know Jamais Vu? Jamais Vu? Uh, that's where something's recognizable, but it's still unfamiliar I, I get this a lot i'll hear a word in my head like plate um and then begin to doubt that the word even exists uh presque vu um uh, that's where something is it you know it's it's right on the tip of your tongue but you can't quite push through the mental wall uh of course we all know deja vu uh but um what about its Jekyll and Hyde neighbor, uh, déjà vécu? This is a feeling like you've already lived through something. It doesn't really matter if we finish the story of Vivian Villeneuve. It doesn't really matter if we find out definitively what happened. The journey learning about the story is the story. Everything we do know about Vivian and Lisa and Debbie, broadly speaking, informs everything that came next. Confusion, uncertainty, victim blaming, struggling to make decisions, what to run down. What's the right decision? Pieces of the puzzle are still missing. These are like prescient pieces of the puzzle. It's a poor sort of memory that only works backwards. This is who killed Teresa.
Shout out to Ian, who may be listening to this driving today. Hang in there, buddy. Uh, Today is the 45th anniversary of the disappearance of Sharon Pryor, 1975. Want to clock that? If you like us, uh, give us a nice review on wherever you're listening to this today. Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at Teresa Lohr, at T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E, or my personal Twitter account at JusticeGuy, J-U-S-T-U-S-G-U-Y. There is a Facebook page, Who Killed Teresa? You can check us out there, and always the website, www.teresalor.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm John Allure. Have yourselves a great, great day.
gym sessions, and sweaty summer activities are back, which means more funky smells in your clothes because sweat leaves behind bacteria that causes those hard-to-remove odors. Clorox Fabric Sanitizer products are ready to zap the stink out of fabrics in your home by getting rid of 99.9% of odor-causing bacteria. Eliminate odors in every load or sanitize fabrics between washes with one of our Fabric Sanitizer products. Search Fabric Sanitizer at Clorox.com to learn more. When it counts, trust Clorox. Use as directed. Looking for a foundation that can multitask as well as you? Maybelline's Fit Me Matte and Poreless Foundation is it. What does it do? More like, what doesn't it do? It's oil-free and non-comedogenic, so it won't ever clog your pores. It controls shine for a full 12 hours. It refines your pores so your skin looks smooth and perfected. It's lightweight and breathable, so your skin will never feel heavy or cakey. And it comes in 40 shades. 97% of women found their perfect shade. It's obvious why Fit Me Mad and Poreless is America's number one foundation. Buy yours now in a bottle or pouch at Amazon.com.